me pone un, un épodos. Si tú no quieres hablar conmigo, dímelo para yo no llamarte ni molestarte, porque nada más quedaba tú. Real talk. Real people. Real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Chichichia! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker Movement, Jules Duget, with another amazing show for you. But before we get started, I want to remind everyone that this platform was built because too often we as people, we were overlooked and labeled, but this is no longer. Our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Today's show is amazing in so many ways, and let's just kick off by saying schizophrenia is the most misunderstood of all mental health illnesses, yet it impacts over 20 million people and counting. This includes families, relationships, and our society. The theory of our next guest says that people who have schizophrenia don't suppress the hormone dopamine enough, which is, it also affects our language in the way that evolution has trained us. So if our brains do not process language well, it leaves us to function as if we are in a hallucinatory, delusional, or dream state. Our next guest, Stephen Lesk, is a board-certified psychiatrist for almost four decades. He has treated thousands of adult patients while researching, writing articles, and mentoring students. He served as the chairman of the Department of Inpatient Psychiatric Services at the Brooklyn VA Hospital and was an assistant professor at the hospital's affiliated medical school. He lives near Minneapolis, Minnesota. He is the author of a great book, Footprints of Schizophrenia, The Evolutionary Roots of Mental Health Illness. In addition to this, his treatments and efforts for schizophrenia, Dr. Lesk's theory could affect what we can do as people with other dopamine-related illnesses. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ADD, and more. His book recently received a great review in Publishers Weekly. He is a dedicated family man, husband, and father. Above all, he thanks his patients, his best teachers. Dr. Lesk, welcome to our show. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here, and I look forward to uh, talking about my book and my theories and schizophrenia and mental illness in general because that's what I've been doing for 40 years or so, and uh, it's certainly uh, a big part of my life. Well, the pleasure is ours. Um, tell us a little bit of what you're currently working on. Well, I, I'm working on another book. It's about entropy, which is the second law of thermodynamics. And I think entropy is going to turn out to be the key concept of the 21st century. Entropy... Mm -hmm basically means um, a search for disorder and low energy that happens automatically uh, in every aspect of, of the universe. Uh, for example, I'm sitting here with a cup of hot tea. If you wait long enough, that hot tea will, will cool to the surrounding temperature. And that's kind of the classic illustration of entropy, that everything sinks to this uh, average temperature uh, temperature and energy around it. But I think that this principle lurks behind 
all kinds of things, including mental illness, physical illness, uh, the way society is structured, things like wars. Uh, it goes along with Freud's concept of the death instinct. And I think it's going to really be uh, seen as the key issue that, that it is, hopefully, this century. Well, we're looking forward to hearing more about this. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey and your story with uh, schizophrenia. Well, I was always interested in uh, how the brain functions and what makes us tick. Even in high school, uh, I did a, uh, a bachelor's in psychology, a master's in psychology at City University in New York. Uh, I have a medical degree. I have some psychoanalytic training. But, and I served as a chief resident at a uh, hospital on Long Island, Nassau County Medical Center. But I was never satisfied with the um, explanations that we had to give our patients and that I heard my uh, attending psychiatrist give our patients. You know, families would come in and say, well, you've diagnosed my son or daughter or relative with schizophrenia. What is that? And all they would say was, well, it's a chemical imbalance or it's genetics or it's connectivity. And it really wasn't satisfying didn't explain much, and did not go deep enough. So being the kind of diet-in-the-world nerd that I am, at some point I decided, who better to come up with something deeper and more satisfying than just chemical imbalance? So I started broadening my knowledge base. I started studying anthropology, studying developmental psychology, evolutionary theory, even uh, physics, and, uh, of course, I was already familiar with some biochemistry and psychopharmacology and some Freudian theory. And what I found after a while was something that I thought was very important, made a lot of sense, and took us much deeper in understanding of what schizophrenia and mental illness is than anything that I had heard or read before. Hmm. You know, schizophrenia affects the brain and how we act. You know, the way people look at us, the way we look at other people, and most importantly, our, our families. What are some ways that our listeners can begin to understand the effects of this challenging brain disorder? Um, it does impact about 1% of our population. What can we do? Well, imagine that you're Going through high school uh, pretty normally, you have some friends, you have some hobbies and interests and enjoyments. And then around the age of 18 or 20, maybe you just started college, you're thinking, for reasons unknown prior to this, starts to change. And you start to become uh, paranoid. You feel like the government may be watching you. You feel like your food may be poisoned. You start to get very uh, uncomfortable around people, start to lose interest in your appearance or your uh, ability to socialize. And everyone else around you notices this uh, even more than you do. And uh, this progresses to the point where you may start hearing voices talking to you. Some people say they hear voices from the vents or the ceiling fan or the TV. Um, and your behavior may become, frankly, uh, odd and bizarre and withdrawn. And the people around you are 
struggling to figure out what's going on and to get your help. And hopefully the next move is that someone in your family will bring it to a psychiatrist. Because there are studies that show that the longer you wait before getting treatment, the worse your prognosis. Mm. So the next step is to see a psychiatrist, hopefully get diagnosed. Um, but there is kind of a prodromal period. Some people go through uh, preliminary diagnoses like a major depression with psychotic features or uh, post-traumatic stress or bipolar diagnosis before even getting to the schizophrenic diagnosis. But eventually, uh, that will be pretty clear to people. And then the next step is to be on medication. And we have 30 or so medications for schizophrenia. Uh, they're not perfect, but it's definitely better to be on them than, than not. To mm. You know, you mentioned this, the age of 18, this onset age. And for our, for our parents, you know, shout out to the, the moms and the dads who have to tackle this face on. This really changes the dynamics of our families. It impacts how we now plan our futures and our lives. And I've seen many clients who I have worked with where the mom and the dad, it really becomes a change of pace for so many people. And many family members bow out. It becomes very difficult for them to, to hang on to this. And, you know, I'm just saying all the families that are dealing with this truly understand that this is a marathon. It just doesn't go away. But understanding the ways of treatment that you talked about, the medication, having a psychiatrist that you can, you know, connect with. Let's talk a little bit about your theory around the misunderstandings of this illness, because if we can't suppress the hormone of dopamine, how how is it that we're lured into understanding that the dopamine feeling our best selves is not available? How can we bow out or level ourselves in a way that we're safe away from this? Well, uh, I would say there's no absolute protection against schizophrenia. Um, one thing you definitely want to avoid are street drugs. Um, but anyone is susceptible to it. It's 1% of the population worldwide across all geopolitical, ethnic, socioeconomic boundaries, which is one of the statistics that needs to be answered if you're going to explain schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. But what happens is um, uh, what we call hominins, who are human-like animals, have been around for millions of years, uh, six or seven million but language has only been around for 50,000 years, which is a drop in the bucket evolutionarily. And language totally revolutionized the way we use our brains. And uh, Homo sapiens were really masters of language. They, they really take to what we call symbol formation, which is the essence of language, beautifully. And uh, you know, there are several other species of Homo around, Neanderthals, Denisovans, Naledi. By 10,000 BC, we'd wipe them off because we had language and they had primitive language, but it really wasn't language. So it, it really brought an advance in our thinking. And what language does is essentially complexify our minds. Um, children have different ways of thinking than adults do. 
primitive people have different ways of thinking than the adult uh, civilized person does. Uh, someone who's using psychedelics has a primitive way of thinking. And all of us have a primitive way of thinking in dreams when we're asleep. But what language did was carry us from this primitive thinking uh, level and rules to the modern adult realistic form of thinking, which uh, Freud would say uh, adopted the reality principle. Now we can participate in our conscious thoughts, we can uh, reason, use deductive reasoning, and rationalize things. So what happened, if we want to talk about dopamine, the dopamine is uh, a reward chemical. And that reward was utilized uh, in place and sense of evolution in that when, when the caveman did something in their best interest for survival, like finding food or finding a mate or defending themselves against a predator or killing a predator, they would get a dollop of dopamine. And that dopamine served the purpose of rewarding them for survivalistic behaviors, procreative behaviors. But once we got conscious thought, we could do our own thinking. We really didn't need a dopamine reward as much. So what we started to do was suppress dopamine in tracks that we could never suppress it before. There are four dopamine tracks, and one of them, the nigrostriatal, is involved with motion and movement. And then that track, we suppress dopamine because we all, as children, we learn coordinated movement. And in doing that, we suppress dopamine. But once we got language and could use conscious thought, then we could suppress dopamine in a couple of other tracks, a mesolimbic, mesocortical, and that becomes the process that we engage in during adolescence. We learn to suppress dopamine in those tracks as we learn to think, use reason. Um, we have uh, instinctual inhibitions that we assert parenting, learning, schooling, and we end up in a, in, in a position of suppressing dopamine very successfully for 80% of us. We use language beautifully, conscious thought, we can think for ourselves. But for maybe 20% of the population, it's not quite as secure, that dopamine suppression. Mm -hmm. And when we take schizophrenics, Around the age of 18, 20, 25, suddenly there is a desuppression of dopamine, a huge rush, and this brings us back to that primitive thinking that we had prior to language, as if we were in the caveman era. So that's what I call uh, the mentally ill evolution's dispossessed. We're still in this transition. It is so new and so profound that mm -hmm. not all of us are on board yet, and those who are least on board Otherwise, we call it. So interesting in your answer, just to summarize for us and our listeners, thinking about the art of language, when we are thinking, at least from the Latino families, we are thinking about our son or daughter learning our habits because we don't know the second language. So we struggle and the student is struggling now to learn and catch on to what we are teaching them. So these habits that we begin to kind of bring out I see many times in the school system where we have our students teaching the parent now because you're saying it wrong. This is how you say this. So now the language or that linkage is very um, 
non-parallel, if you will. And now some of the parents we have seen are struggling to say, I just don't know English. And now they're not willing to even try because they feel that even my child who is six or seven is telling me I'm not speaking it right. And when we're thinking about the feeling of dopamine, there is so much to think about when alcohol or drugs are being mixed in that feeling that I always want to be at my best self, which is so dangerous. So we're urging anyone who has a diagnosis or not to try to stay away from substances because it does fuel different things for different people. Now I want to take a look at usually, at least when I was growing up, and I didn't know all the things I know now, but I always thought about it as males get schizophrenia and, and females don't. But if we were to look at this now and to better understand the ratio between males and females, you know, males are at risk just as much as women are. Is it that women get diagnosed at a later age, but women are just at risk as men are? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Uh, basically, it's 50-50. Mm. Uh, there are some slight differences between uh, women and men in terms of schizophrenia. Men t- tend to have an earlier age of onset. They may have a more severe course in general. But women can get schizophrenia just as much as men. And they may be somewhat protected hormonally. Some people think it may be something uh, genetic. I don't think so. I think the differences really are not that great between uh, men and women in terms of incidence and severity. Schizophrenia, once someone has that diagnosis, the expectations of their functioning tends to go down. Mm. Let's talk about your book, Footprints of Schizophrenia, The Evolutionary Roots of Mental Illness. Tell us a little bit about this book. Basically, like I said, the thesis is that schizophrenia is an evolutionary glitch in all mental illnesses because of this evolutionary moment that we're in. We just have gotten language that made this profound change, but we're still in that transformation uh, era, and not everyone's on board. So you could say that all mental illness is an evolutionary glitch that will pass over the next maybe 10,000, 20,000 years. And my uh, prediction is that 10,000, 20,000 years from now, there will be no mental illness because we've gotten far enough from this transitional period to leave it behind. But right now, there's still a draw on certain people back to that six, seven million year way of thinking, which Mm. certainly has the momentum over 50,000 years, and some people are just drawn back to it. Not just schizophrenics, bipolars, major depression, anxiety disorders, OCD, all of that has something to do with this return to more primitive thinking. And autistics also, Autistic patients often have language difficulties. Some of them can't speak at all. And I think that has a major impact on their inability to socialize and, and be around others. Why, why are some people unable to process dopamine while others can do it just fine? Well, at this point, I think it's basically statistics. Uh, 1% of us are going to be schizophrenic no matter what. There are some things that increase the risk. Uh, for example, having an elderly father, uh, growing up in an urban as opposed to rural area, being born in uh, winter months, 
all these things have a slight uh, uptick in, in risk. But by and large, I think it's basically an evolutionary phenomenon, not genetic. Mm. Some people will disagree with that. Um, but if you think about what Darwin said, any kind of mutation or gene that lowers your functioning and reduces your reproductive rate, and schizophrenics have a much lower rate of reproduction, should go extinct rapidly. And schizophrenia is not going extinct. So it has to be something other than genetics. So there are going to be a certain percentage of people who are going to process dopamine well initially, but around the age of 18, 20, it's all going to sink back to a desuppression of dopamine, and their thought process is going to become more primitive, less complex. And this is where entropy comes in, because entropy favors disorganization. Mm. When we uh, learn to think and, and use language, that's kind of going against entropy. When we uh, suppress dopamine, our minds are complexifying and becoming more energized. But for the schizophrenic, it all falls apart, and they are drawn back to that primitive way of thinking, which uh, releases a lot of energy uh, and does gratify this second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy. And once it happens, they have that diagnosis for lifetime. You know, and, and once again, for families and, and patients who are dealing with schizophrenia, like the evolution of schizophrenia has kind of changed the landscape. Back when research was first started, there was so much to be unknown about this. And I feel that you, you alluded to the medication piece to being some of the areas that are still some grow areas, but there's a lot of process and growth positively that has happened. In your book, you talk about the dark ages that psychiatry is still in. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, for example, if you go to a family practitioner, uh, he'll ask you your symptoms, uh, he'll do some, he'll examine you, he'll do some blood tests, some x-rays, and then he'll come back and say, well, you've got diabetes, you've got high blood pressure, you've got heart disease, and here's how we're gonna treat. If you go to a psychiatrist, we don't have a single blood test, a single x-ray that can give us a diagnosis. So what we rely on is the patient's history, history from the family, uh, records from previous treatments. But there's a lot of uh, room for uh, error and uh, different opinions. You can go to five different psychiatrists and potentially get five different diagnoses and treatment plans. So in that sense, uh, I don't think we're where we should be in terms of being, you know, medical doctors. Now, we help a lot of people, and the medications we have do work, but very often we're forced to combine lots of different medications. Medications have side effects that sometimes are onerous, and some of the medications take weeks to work. So we need to do better. And mm -hmm. I think if we can understand the illnesses we're treating better, then we will be able to move ahead and uh, focus our research more on what we need. And that's what I'm hoping that my uh, theory is going to lead to, a better understanding of what schizophrenia and mental illness really is. You know, I want to try to take a, like a deeper dive into this. Uh, a patient comes to you. I know you've treated thousands and thousands of patients uh, you are probably the second opinion or the third opinion. Family is coming to you. They they want to hear something that's positive. 
And in the terms of here are my records, you know, this last person said that I was X, Y, Z. What can you tell me about this situation? And they wanted me to do this. And now how can you support this? Like, how difficult is that for you as a provider to have to hear that and become the therapist in many, in many ways to support families? Well, um, again, you know, diagnosis in psychiatry isn't always exact. And there's room for, uh, you know, considering other possibilities. And very often, patients have more than one diagnosis. So for any diagnosis or group of diagnoses, there's hope. There's lots of hope. And uh, the schizophrenia, which is probably the most severe mental illness, there's some very high-functioning schizophrenics. Mm -hmm. We have schizophrenics who are doctors, lawyers, uh, politicians, you name it. And uh, Nobel Prize winners like John Nash from mm -hmm. the film uh, A Beautiful Mind. Mm -hmm. So there's always hope and uh, there's always the possibility of reaching a higher functional level than uh, is predicted from any diagnosis. So the goal is to not, to not to lose hope, not to throw in the towel, and to try to hang in there with your relative, even though you know, there's something called anosognosia, which means the patient isn't aware that they have a nose, and they truly are not. Everyone around them can see it, but they really don't. They don't understand that their thinking has changed markedly and is using different rules than most of us. Mm. So because of that, they're more likely than most to go off medication, to kind of rebel against this idea that they're ill, to try to do things that they really can't do. They may resort to drugs or alcohol to try to cope with all this, and that just pours gas on the fire. But there's always hope, and we help a lot of people. Uh, and you know that's what's so wonderful about psychiatry, that we see great results a lot of the time, but we also have to be aware of the fact that some illnesses are going to reduce your functional expectations. Hmm. And let's talk a little bit about the treatment. Many times... Um, you talked about a patient not being on the regime for their medication the correct way. They, they on and off, and then they have an episode, something happens, a family member has to call 911, and now this patient is hospitalized, and now the process kind of starts all over again. And like you said, you have to layer out or tease out the levels of medications that this person may or may not be on, the diagnoses. What are some of the things that you're thinking about when a patient is heightened in that way in crisis mode? Is it the best step to have them hospitalized and help our listeners understand that piece? Because many a times they say, yeah, just let them stay there. But their length of stay could be seven, 14 days. It all depends. Can you help us understand that? Well, uh, the first issue is dangerousness. Uh, anyone who seems to be on the verge of harming themselves or others has to be brought to an emergency room because we want to protect everybody. Mm. And then the issue of, you know, coming to the right diagnosis is crucial. And that, that can take time. Uh, you know, you may have to get to know the patient a while. But once we have an accurate diagnosis, then there is some trial and error to find the right medication. Because medication that works beautifully for one patient is intolerable for another. And we don't know that until we try them. So all of these things make it more complicated, 
more complex, and sometimes don't give us the best results that we want to initially. But if you keep at it and persist, uh, usually we can help people quite a bit over time. I want to think a little bit about the symptomology, but right now let's talk about the different types of schizophrenia. Um, you have a patient who may be paranoid, uh, catonic, residual. Can you tell us a little bit about the different types of schizophrenia and what you're up against when you kind of listen to this diagnosis for the first time? Well, uh, lately we haven't really been focusing as much on types of schizophrenia, but, you know, we have uh, often placed schizophrenics in the category of paranoid, especially ones who focus on feeling like they're being persecuted or followed or attacked or that they're constantly under surveillance and things. That would indicate a paranoid diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Something that's called catatonic schizophrenia, where a patient acts almost uh, mute and in a stupor and may not even respond at all. And uh, that we do differentiate from garden variety schizophrenia. But a lot of schizophrenia we just label undifferentiated. It's mm. schizophrenia, and we don't particularly need to label it any further. Because once you have that diagnosis, you know that they have to be on one of the antipsychotic medications. And all of those medications essentially do the same thing. What do they do? They block dopamine, which is why I'm saying that when people break down with a schizophrenic illness, dopamine is suppressed in a major way. And mm -hmm. every medication that helps it blocks dopamine, and that gets them back closer to where they used to be in their thought process. Hmm. That kind of goes along with my theory very nicely that what we're looking at is a desuppression of dopamine all across the board. But it, it involves trial and error. Uh, a lot of times patients are going to just stop their meds and say, I don't have an illness, why should I take it? And the side effects can be quite onerous. I mean, almost all of the antipsychotic medications cause weight. And some hmm. of them massive weight. Some of them will cause muscle stiffness. Some of them will cause a very uncomfortable restlessness. Mm -hmm. One medication, which we consider as psychiatrists the very best medication for schizophrenia, it has so many side effects, you have to have a blood test every single week. It can cause constipation to the point of bowel obstruction, drooling, seizures, mm -hmm. and waking. The bottom line is it's still better to be on one and find the one that suits you than not to be on. Mm. So these are all the struggles that we as psychiatrists go through, and we bring in other medications. You know, a patient can become very depressed about the fact that they're schizophrenic, and so we're willing to add an antidepressant to help them through that. So they may uh, have what we call schizoaffective disorder, which is kind of a combination between schizophrenia and bipolar, where these mood swings between hyperactive, manic, euphoric states followed by depressive, underactive states of uh, you know, low self-esteem and low motivation. And for those, we use what we call mood-stabilizing medication, like lithium or tegretol or depotol. So all of these factors have to be weighed into account. The schizophrenic may have suffered uh, trauma growing up and have a post-traumatic stress disorder 
on top of their schizophrenia. Hmm. They look at ways of treating flashbacks and nightmares, and then the issue of therapy. Is it good for the patient to be in therapy? Most of the time it is. If they can establish a trusting relationship with someone, usually will help them. But there are some people who just cannot take to the therapy, but then it's not enough. You know, this is just an observation by me and now listening to you, this the the correlation between cigarette smoking and dopamine and how they continuously seek cigarettes and sometimes you see them so deep in thought, you wonder what can or cannot be going through their minds at that time, but it feels as if the cigarette chain smoking is suppressing or probably helping in that way. Who knows? But listening to what you're talking about, what are some of the things that you think you want our listeners to get from your book? Uh, okay, I'll get to that and say, but interesting that you mentioned smoking. We found that nicotine actually um, makes their thinking uh, more complex. In other mm-hmm. words, smoking cigarettes reduces a little bit the primitivity of thought that they have. And that's why they're often seen chain-smoking one after the other. And it may also lower the blood levels of some medications. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of reasons that schizophrenics want to smoke. But one thing, as a general... Uh, information about schizophrenia is that these are not uh, violent people. These are very passive uh, people who tend to be kind of meek. They're fascinating individuals, and you should not shun them or avoid them. They don't have anything contagious. Um, they need to be brought out of, the, uh, out, of, out of the woodwork and from under the radar into the public spotlight. I mean, these are massive numbers, three and a half million in this country alone. So when you think of that, and all of their families, and all of their caregivers, and the people trying to help them, there are millions and millions of people who are aware of schizophrenics, but you don't hear about it. Mm. You don't hear anyone saying, well, you know, so-and-so is a schizophrenic. Or, you know, we had this movie, A Beautiful Mind, which, mm-hmm. you know, talks about a Nobel Prize-winning schizophrenic. But that is obviously not the norm. Uh, we need to have more... Um, Shows, movies, or featuring schizophrenics. We need to have more people uh, interacting with them and not being afraid of them and trying to understand them. They're fascinating people. They think differently than we do, but they have a lot to offer. So the first thing I would tell anyone who's interested in schizophrenia is that there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, I've worked for 40 years with schizophrenics. I've never been assaulted by a schizophrenic. I was once assaulted by a sociopathic patient, but never a schizophrenic. Um, they're wonderful people. They have uh, interests and all kinds of things to tell you that you hadn't thought of before. Try to hang in there with them if you're a family member, because we know that schizophrenics who have supportive family members in the long run are going to do better than people who have been abandoned. By the mm-hmm. So that's another thing. Uh, the bottom line is Keep them away from all street drugs, alcohol. That's just pouring gas on a fire. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say one thing about psychedelics. Uh, the newer antipsychotic medications, called atypicals, not only block dopamine, but they block a serotonin receptor called 2A. And that seems to give them a, an advantage. Wouldn't you know it, all psychedelic drugs 
stimulate the receptor 2A of serotonin. So what the antipsychotics are doing are blocking something that happens when people take uh, psychedelic drugs. So we know that those drugs are going to do the opposite of what uh, we're trying to do with the medication and are going to reduce their effectiveness. I read an article recently about uh, patients who use, use different drugs, different types of drugs, and become psychotic, which means essentially crazy, and go to an emergency room, were followed for several years to see how many of them eventually became schizophrenic. Mm. The drug that caused the most schizophrenia was marijuana. I would have thought it would be methamphetamine, psychedelics, mushrooms, but marijuana. Marijuana is not a harmless drug. It really lowers your IQ, and it works against all medication. So when I hear a patient say to me, well, I use a little marijuana once in a while, first thing I tell them is don't. Just don't. Do yourself a favor. Don't. Mm. So these are some of the big rules we can keep in mind. The bottom line is don't abandon schizophrenics. Let's bring them out come under the radar and into the spotlight and see what they have to offer. It's quite a bit. They're artists, they're, they're uh, all kinds of people. Ellen Sachs, who wrote the book The Center Cannot Hold, which is kind of an iconic uh, memoir for schizophrenia, went mm-hmm. to Oxford, went to Yale, all the time having schizophrenic breakdowns, going off her medication. Weijin uh, Wang, who wrote the book The Collected Schizophrenia, was on a bestseller list for months. I went to Yale. Bethany Yeiser, who wrote the book Mind is Strange. I got a degree in biochemistry. So they're all types of schizophrenics, very high-functioning, low-functioning, mid-functioning, but they all have something to offer. And we want to uh, put the spotlight on them. Why is it so uh, underground and uh, everyone's avoiding it? Uh, we need to have more more input and understanding of them. And I'm hoping that my theory, by increasing understanding, will decrease stigma, because there's just too much stigma about this thing. Beautifully said. Beautifully said, Dr. Lesk. And I think that as as my wheels are turning, you know, if there was more money invested in some of these day programs to get the gifts and the talents out of these patients, I think that that's more of what they need, more time and effort. And there's money that can be allocated towards this because part of it, yes, is the medication piece. But if we had staff aligned to bring out these gifts and these talents, you can see that that would work. And those that do visit the day programs, you can see them as higher functioning because they have a rhythm, they have a structure, and all of these things seem to come aligned. So I'm very happy to hear that you are not only treating and helping these patients, but you're also looking for the side of us to step up as family members, as friends, to continue to honor, love them, and understand that this is an illness, just like any other illness, except that this one here requires that you have more patience and understanding that they're dealing with a multitude of of variety of things. Let's get back to your book. Tell us a little bit about some of the things you want our listeners to get out of your book? Well, this is a different theory. I mean, the bottom line is there is no other uh, encompassing theory of schizophrenia. There just isn't until now. This theory 
explains everything about schizophrenia, all the major data, and I think it's, it's very persuasive if you give it a chance. So when you think about the idea that you know, primitive people for millions of years had a certain type of mind, and then just very recently our minds changed drastically, it makes perfect sense that some of us are not going to be on board. And this doesn't just apply to mental illness. If you think about illnesses like Parkinson's, which is a deficit of schizophrenia, uh, Tourette's, another illness where acetylcholine, a related neurotransmitter, has to break through a a heavy uh, blanket of dopamine, stuttering, restless legs, possibly Alzheimer's, because Alzheimer's uh, has to do with the deficit of acetylcholine, kind of the mirror uh, image uh, neurotransmitter. All of these things are a result of this recent transition that we made to a different mode of thinking, and it's left a lot of collateral damage. And you can also think of it in terms of, you know, our lifestyle is so vastly different from a caveman. Um, I like to say we've gone from the jungle to the disco. I mean, a caveman had a diet of of basically roots, uh, ripe vegetables, and occasionally would kill an animal and cook it and eat it. But here we are eating all kinds of refined carbohydrates, sugars. You know, you need machines to refine uh, things into uh, flour and refined sugar. And uh, our diets are so different. And our habits, I mean, the caveman woke up in the morning and was completely physical all day. He didn't have a car to get into or a bicycle. He did anything he did was on his own steam, his own power. And uh, now we sit in offices and work for eight hours, we barely move, and we are causing damage to ourselves because we've made this transition. But of course, you know, the payoff was certainly worth it. To live in a civilization where there are rules and not being attacked by predators every minute, and people are in a society where they respect one another and get along, is certainly worth the trade-off. But there are there is collateral damage. We have to look at it. It's not just mental illness. It's all kinds of illnesses and habits that we have that are working against it. And in the background of all of this, and this is the subject of my next book, lies entropy, the second law of thermodynamics that is pulling us all back toward the inorganic. Mm. So uh, I hope to elucidate even further something that... Uh, I think is behind a lot of this and makes it more likely that we have wars and civil disputes and uh, attempt to kill each other and return other people to the inorganic state. It's part of, of what we're made of, unfortunately. Well, we would love to reconnect with you when your next book drops, and we will definitely have this book on our website. Thank I was lucky, lucky enough to have a copy of this and I'm, I'm still reading through it, but I am very interested in learning more about this. You have treated thousands of patients, and you may be able to or not, but tell us about this. Are there a group, maybe? Is there a patient that you think about constantly, about their struggle or their successes, and they draw you to do this work with more empowerment, 
with more fury just because you need to step up for them? Is there such a patient? Well, I'd say there are several. Uh, one that comes to mind is a woman who was at Harvard, Harvard uh, College, when she had her breakdown and uh, tried to get help, was placed on medication, never very satisfied with the results. Finally, she came to me, and we worked together to find the right medicine, and uh, she got better, and then left to my practice. And maybe 10, 20 years later, I got a letter from her saying, Dr. Lesk, thank you for what you did to me. This is what I'm doing. She's in a rock band. She has this kind of job. She's doing well. And it's that kind of thing that we kind of live for as psychiatrists to know that we made a difference in someone's life who could have easily floundered much, much more heavily than, than she did. So there are all kinds of uh, examples of that. I mean, I have patients who are very low-functioning, and they live in group homes and uh, don't have a lot of enjoyments, but they still show up for their uh, meeting with me. They take their medications, and they uh, tell me about the things they enjoy doing. A lot of it has to do with music, the arts. Uh, they're very involved with things like that. And, of course, there are patients who are kind of superstars, uh, doctors, lawyers, who are battling schizophrenia successfully, but, you know, of course, still feeling the effect of that, uh, that battle. And I have a patient who is on medication, She's very aware that she has symptoms, but she's unwilling to admit that she's schizophrenic, but yet she takes her clozapine medication for schizophrenia. And she every time I meet with her, she says to me, well, what do you think? Can, I, can we cut down this medication any further? Every time I say no, you still feel like there are satellites controlling you. You still feel that voices in your head beam your thoughts out to others. And I wouldn't want to see those symptoms get worse. She says, okay, Dr. Les. She leaves and comes back three months later with the same question. But, uh, I mean, these are fascinating, lovely people who I enjoy talking to. I think many people will. If you can drop the fear and the stigma and think they're going to contaminate you or in some way attack you, that's not going to happen. These are just people who are struggling to understand why their mind has changed and why their behavior has changed and why everyone around them treats them differently because they really don't understand it. In their view, they're the same as they were 10 years before they almost begin. Mm-hmm. Fascinating situation. Well, thank you for sharing those lovely stories. And again, in this work, we always admire those that don't give up. And even in your seat, you have to relinquish your power, so to speak, and and live up and big up to all those people that keep driving you to be better at what you do. Tell us about your theory. How do you want our listeners to kind of apply this, use it, learn from it? Well, first of all, you know, the one major point of my theory is that it's nobody's fault, not the patients, not the families, no one. This is an evolutionary glitch due to this moment in time that we find ourselves and that is going to pass, but it's going to take, unfortunately, thousands of years for this to pass. Mm-hmm. So 
these are people who are caught in this evolutionary glitch through no fault of their own, and to uh, realize that it's a difficult situation for them, and they're going to lack understanding of it, because we, as psychiatrists, have lacked understanding. This is the first time a theory is coming through with a complete explanation of schizophrenia. And the other thing I would say is that there are many red herrings in schizophrenia. The first one is genetics. People are fixated on the idea that this must be genetic. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, Darwin made it very clear that it cannot be genetic. As I said, a, a mutation that lowers your reproductive rate and your functioning goes extinct quickly. And schizophrenia is not going extinct. The other thing is, uh, if it was genetic, you would expect that identical twins with the exact same genes, if one has schizophrenia, 100% of the time, the other would. That's less than 50%. Mm. So there are many things that are going into this risk, but we can't call this a genetic illness. Mm. And too many people have spent their time uh, invested in that statement. And we have to be willing to let go of something uh, if it's proven false. Mm. So that's that's one probable interference with us moving on to a higher understanding of the illness. The other thing is, as I said, this illness takes place 1% across all geopolitical boundaries. Most genetic illnesses like sickle cell, anemia, you know, it focuses on one ethnic group. Tay-Sachs, one ethnic group. Not so with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. It's it's, it's uh, universal. So we want to be open to new theories, thinking about things in a different way, and seeing if we can accept it. It's like buying a car, you know, if you kick the tires and you sit in it and drive it around a bit, you might find it very comfortable. And I think anyone who looks at this theory seriously will kind of see the, the wisdom in it. Uh, and uh, being immodest, but it just seems to fit all the data that we have. And it makes sense that 18 to 20 is the time when schizophrenia sets in because this primitive type of mind um, takes time to uh, also develop. And it's mm -hmm. not ready to take the reins of their minds over until 18 or so. Mm -hmm. well, you can see evidence of schizophrenia earlier than that. Some children will have symptoms like voices, and that puts them at greater risk of schizophrenia. And we are working on defining what we call ultra-high-risk people who we can possibly medicate before the onset of schizophrenia, but we're just not there yet. Yeah, you know, and, and, and interestingly, you know, you talk about genetics and we as people, we're kind of wired a specific way. We want to get to the root answer. We want to understand the reasons behind this is that we want to find the adversary. We want to find the answers to it. I always tell our listeners, please let the professionals handle their areas. If you're not satisfied with that answer, there's so many providers within that work that you can kind of tap into. And I think when you're searching out for answers, the Internet now compared to many years ago was not available. And now there's a lot more areas and answers that you can get some research. But don't be fooled that some new type of medicine or something that's not been heard of. This is something that you're saying based on research and people have a tangible way of accessing this. Let's talk a little bit about you. What do you do for self-care? How do you keep up to do this work for so many years? 
Well, the, the biggest thing that I tell people is that if you find a, a profession that you enjoy, you'll never work a day in your life. And I always enjoy it, so I'm very lucky. I mean, yes, there can be difficult patients and certain treatment settings are better than others. So that's I've been very blessed in that, although I'm starting to look at retirement now. But uh, so I've been very fortunate. What I love to do is work out, and I do that almost every day, and that kind of nurtures me. What I love to do is sit in my beanbag chair, which I've had for 30 years, nice. and just think about things. It is so comfortable and so nice, and I do that you know, every chance I get. And then I recently put a sauna in my basement. Mm. You, living in Minnesota, where temperatures can drop to minus 30 for weeks at a time, getting in that 160-degree sauna will mellow you out. So mm. those are some things I do uh, that they really uh, rejuvenate me, which uh, I love to. There must be a correlation with working out in doctors. All the doctors that I bring here say, I work out every day. You're making the world look bad. We're going to have to figure this out. You know, it, there are so many things to, like, think about. What What are some of the challenges that you are up against in this, in this work, in this field? Well, I am just starting this kind of journey with my book. And I am expecting to get a lot of disagreement, even disrespect maybe, about this theory, because uh, it is not what everyone else is focusing on by any means. To say that the illnesses that you're treating as a psychiatrist come from a glitch in evolution and goes back uh, six, seven million years to the type of thinking that we had as cavemen is not just going to be accepted by everyone without a certain degree of contention, which is fine. I look forward to that. But so I'm expecting there to be a certain degree of blowback about it and contention. Mm. And then we as a psychiatrist, what we do is the best we can, we put together treatment for patients. And, you know, sometimes we're more successful than others. And some of it is luck. It's mm -hmm. trial and error and the willingness for the patient to keep at it and be tenacious and say, well, if this isn't working, we're going to scrap that and go to something else. And to pull in, you know, diverse uh, fields, you know, therapy, medication, uh, you name it, exercise, I recommend to everyone. And by the way, exercise goes back to the fact that the caveman did nothing but exercise. Mm -hmm. And now, to, for us to sit in a chair eight hours a day, we're harming us. Mm. So, uh, and to think about diet, all of these are, you know, issues that come up. It's a fascinating world. Well, you know what, Dr. Lesk, I, I can see um, that you will be up against battles, but I, I am behind you saying 40 years plus of this work, you've kind of studied this, understood it, you've applied it. And once again, as you talked about, to the greatest teachers that you've ever had have been your patients. So many beautiful stories that are behind that. There is so much to talk about behind this, but... When we think about our families, what advice do you have for them when a patient, a son, a daughter is now newly diagnosed? What are some strategies that they can utilize to support themselves? Uh, there's a group called NAMI, a National Association for the Mentally Ill, 
and they have uh, you know, no-cost uh, groups and support and information for uh, families. Um, like I said, the big challenge will be to stick with the patient, not abandon them, even though time and again they may say, I'm not taking my medication, I have no mental illness. Stick with them, uh, find the things that you love about them, uh, get them to a psychiatrist to get help, encourage them to stay on their medication, all of these things. And don't be discouraged by the fact that they may not have a very complete explanation for what this illness is. If they want a complete explanation, please look at my book, because I don't think there is another one out there that I have read that really gets to the heart of it. And if they do read it, they'll realize that it's nobody's fault, it's the luck of the draw, and it's just a tough situation. Well, we're going to have it on our website, and the link will be available to them. I want to give you the opportunity to, um, the floor is yours. What do you want our listeners to remember about you, about your journey, about your patients? The floor is yours. Uh, I'll also mention my website, stephenleskmd.com. You'll find a lot of information there. Um, I guess what I'd say is none of us are, are uh, incapable of coming up with a new theory. Uh, none of us are incapable of doing something that can make a big difference in terms of our knowledge, the way we treat patients, the way we understand them. And I think too many psychiatrists kind of go along with, well, here's the knowledge we have, so I'll leave it to the researchers. They'll come up with something better. We can all come up with something better. You know, Our minds are, are the theater in which all of this takes place. And we all have access to our minds, and we have some access to our patients' minds. And we can use that information to think about what we hear and what we are seeing in our patients to come up with something significant and new. Mm -hmm. I wish that my profession was a little more interactive, getting people involved with issues and uh, disputes, uh, disagreements. It seems too much like, well, here's what the researchers are telling us, so that's what we accept, and we'll wait Hopefully, someday they'll come up with something better. You don't have to wait. We can start thinking about these things ourselves and come up with something important and better now and be more involved with our own profession, which is a great profession. I recommend it to anyone. Love that, Dr. Stephen Lesk. None of us are incapable. If we put our foot down, we need to stick together to be able to see this through. Because too often, we always are talked about and overlooked, but that means that the work that we're doing is showing something. If we're being talked about, if we're being looked at, that means that we are showing them. So let's be capable. Let's try new things. Let's think out the box. Let's go beyond what the research says, because if you have it in your gut, that means something is there. Because way too often on this platform, we get overlooked and we get labeled, but this is no longer our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Tune in, friends, to a new He's Just a Social Worker show coming to another town real soon near you. We out. 
Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients.